Before we begin the service, we will open in prayer, and we will ask the Lord's guidance on our study of Ephesians this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for the way you provide for this congregation, for the way you take care of us and supply our every needs. We're thankful above all that we have your word, that we have in our hands our own copies of your word in uh, very good translations who, which communicate the basics of your word clearly to us. We're thankful that we have a complete and sufficient revelation from you, just as your grace is complete and sufficient and Christ's work is complete and sufficient, that we can go to your word to find guidance, to find help, to find uh, solace, to find comfort as we go through many challenges and as we look around and survey the scene in our world today uh, with so many nations shut down, so many uh, countries not allowing anyone to travel, so many jobs, careers, livelihoods at risk. Father, we pray that this would be a great opportunity for us to be a faithful witness um, through our lives and especially through our lips as we communicate the gospel and give the hope the answer for the hope that is within us. And we pray now as we study your word that uh, we can focus and concentrate on what you have to teach us this morning. And may God the Holy Spirit make the truth of your word very clear to us. In Christ's name, amen. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. But he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God will abide on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even so, we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And we are wrapping up our study of this section from verses 14 through 18 today to go back and to summarize the implications of what Christ says in verse 16. So we are looking at the topic of reconciliation, removing the barrier between God and man. And this is specifically laid out in verses 16 through 18. So I'm going to go back and remind us through reading what we have studied. Verse 14, we're told, for he himself is our peace. As I have said, this is talking about our uh, peace, not here, it is not talking about our peace with God. It is talking about our peace between Jew and Gentile. As I have made it a point through our study from Ephesians 1 all the way through 2, 
you have to pay attention to these pronouns. When Paul talks about you, he's not talking about you Ephesians. He's talking about you Gentiles. That becomes very clear in a number of passages. We just saw this, for example, in verse 11. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh. All through here is this contrast between the you as Gentiles and the we or the us as Jews. Now, the we or the us, is you have to carefully look at this in terms of the context. In a few places early on, Paul uses we or us to refer to we Jews who were first saved. Okay, so they're Jewish background believers. A few places he talks about the we, for example, in the early part of Ephesians chapter 2, when he says, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, he's talking about we Jews before we were saved. And then the third way he uses we is when he talks about what we now have together as Jew and Gentiles. Okay, so that's very careful. For he himself is our peace. That's Jew and Gentile, who has made the both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So we see from the mention of peace in verse 14 and the mention of peace, this is what's called an inclusio, a literary device, where we get our word inclusion, where you have a word used at the beginning and the same word used again at the end of a section of literature to give you the idea through the, through the use that this is one section and so what's important is what lies between the two and the piece here is the making of both one, abolishing the enmity and creating in himself one new man from the two. And so that chart there lays that out. This is the first barrier that is broken down. And we studied the passage, and we saw that in verse 14 described what Christ did, that he made the both one, and he broke down the wall of separation. That wall of separation is defined in verse 15 as the Mosaic law, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So what he did was to make both one. How he did it was he abolished the law a very clear passage that the law of Moses is no longer applicable to anyone. When it was applicable, it was only applicable to Jews. It was never applicable to Gentiles. There's not anything that is said in condemning Gentiles in the Old Testament that is directly related to the law. For example, when Israel is disciplined and they're taken out of the land, they are disciplined for a number of things one of which is they have broken the Sabbath law, they've broken the law related to the sabbatical years every seven years, and so now the land is going to have rest, and so they are taken out of the land for 70 years to account for 70 years when the sabbatical law was not, was not obeyed. So they're held accountable for their uh, disobedience to the law. They're held accountable also for their idolatry. But the Gentiles were accountable for idolatry. For 
the first three covenants of the Bible, the creation covenant, the Adamic covenant, uh, the Edenic covenant, and the Adamic covenant, were implicitly, excuse me, and the Noahic covenant, are implicitly based on uh, uh, trusting God, obeying God, and are against idolatry. So idolatry is is defined as rebellion against the one true God and worshiping something else. So Jew and Gentile are both held accountable uh, when they commit idolatry, but that's not unique to the Mosaic law. So he abolishes on the cross the law. Why did he do it? And here we have two two, uh, purpose clauses that he might create in himself one new man from the two. Okay, that's making peace. That is between Jew and Gentile. And second, that he might reconcile them both to God. That's what we're focusing on today. So we have these two purposes. First, he creates in himself one new man from the two. That's this new body. Okay, that is the church. That is us where there's no racial distinctions, no ethnic distinctions. Uh, in terms of our spiritual life, none of these distinctions apply. There's no uh, distinctions in relation to gender or in relation to economic, whether you're slave or master. Everybody now has, according to verse 16, access by one spirit to God. In the Old Testament, under the law, that was not, that was not true. So we're looking at this. Verse 16, that he might reconcile them both. Now they're a unit, they're one new body. Reconcile them both to God in one body, that is the church, through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Okay, I'm going to back up a minute because what we see is that in verse 15 we have the word, Enmity that there he abolishes in his flesh the enmity, and then at the end of verse 16, he puts to death the enmity. That's another inclusio. It brackets this section so that this enmity is eradicated by abolishing the law with the result that he makes the two one, new man, one body, making peace between them and reconciling them both to God. So this is the focus. The word for reconciles, interesting word, it is a word that doesn't have a lot of different shades of meaning. You know, as we've studied some words, they have a wide range of meaning. You can think of the word logos, which is translated word in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. Well, the word logos has a huge range of meanings. There probably 30 or 40 different nuances that have been identified for that one word. So you have to be careful with the context, but reconciliation is not such a complex word. It is the Greek word apakatalasso. Now, the root word is katalasso. That's the word that means reconciliation. The prefixes will intensify uh, that particular meaning. Reconcile means to restore peace or harmony uh, between people or between God and man, especially to restore uh, peace or harmony when a state of hostility or enmity has existed. Okay? 
very important to understand that. I'm going to insert that definition by way of paraphrase later on, and it'll give us a greater understanding of what reconciliation means when we look at it that way. So if we chart this out graphically, we have God who is separated from man by sin, and there is enmity between God and all human beings, and there is enmity between Jew and Gentile. So by this, we know uh, our st- the state. Now, what happens in Ephesians 2 is first, Paul talks about this first barrier. Gentiles and the Jews are separated. There's a state of enmity based upon the law. That is abolished by the cross. And then we have a second barrier that exists between all humanity and God, and this we're, we're identifying as the sin barrier. That sin barrier is going to be dealt with at the cross through reconciliation. Man is reconciled to God at the cross. Does that mean everybody is saved? No. Because there's two aspects, as we're going to see, to reconciliation. One is that at the cross, the actions of God were manward, so that with the payment of the sin penalty, that barrier is eradicated, but it doesn't mean that people are automatically saved. Because secondarily, in both Romans 5, which we will look at, and 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, both of these passages are, the, are your key passages on reconciliation. Both passages talk about two aspects. The first aspect is manward, where at the cross man is reconciled to God. God is not reconciled to man. Man is reconciled. The change comes to humanity because of the legal work of Christ on the cross. The change is not directed towards God. There is a change that's directed towards God because of the cross. That's called propitiation. But we're not going to talk about that this morning. But propitiation is Godward. Reconciliation is is manward. And the cross takes care of it. But that doesn't mean we're saved because, as Paul says in uh 2 Corinthians 10, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5, we are to, we are given as ambassadors for Christ, given the message of reconciliation to people, be reconciled to God. So there is the uh, legal change that takes place because of the cross. It changes our status from enmity to reconciled as a, as a group but each individual has to accept what Christ did on the cross in order to be reconciled. So turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Let's start with the first verse. We'll just look at the first two verses and then skip down to verse 10. Therefore, the New King James translates it, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
Or he begins with that word, therefore, which tells us he's drawing a conclusion from what he has said in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is a central passage on understanding justification, that we are all born as sinners and we are spiritually dead, The only and we lack righteousness. We'll talk about this in detail coming up. We lack righteousness, and because we lack righteousness, we have to be given the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. That's imputation. So what he has described in Romans chapter 4 is on the basis of Genesis 15, 6, where Abraham believed God and it was accounted or imputed to him as righteousness, therefore he was justified. That pattern is the same in the New Testament. And so chapter 4 gave us the uh, instructions on justification. And so Paul says, having been justified, actually the participle here should be understood as a causal participle, And it should be translated, therefore, because we have been justified. And we've seen in chapter 4, we're justified by faith alone. So when someone trusts in Christ, they're declared just. That's the classic Protestant doctrine recovered by Martin Luther, kicks off the Protestant Reformation, that justification is by faith alone. The Latin phrase was sola fide, one of several different slogans that characterize the Reformation, sola fide, by faith alone, sola gratia, by grace alone, and sola scriptura, by the scriptures alone, which was a statement against the use of tradition. So therefore, because we have been justified from faith, now I'm not going to take the time But we have some interesting prepositions all through this section, and as I mentioned last time, I've been taking a lot of time to try to understand these because by the Koine Greek, these prepositions get almost interchangeable. In fact, the Greek preposition that we frequently talk about, the preposition in, by the 4th, 5th, 6th century in the Middle Ages, in that period of time, it became so fluid in in um, what became modern Greek that they quit using it because it could mean anything, and it's lost its precision. Here we have the Greek preposition from indicating source, from the source of faith. Because we have been justified from the source of faith, we now have peace. But the verb there is this verb on the right, which is a present tense verb. Now, the reason I only get into grammar if it's really significant for understanding the text. The participle is aorist. That's a past tense, one of two past tenses in the Greek. And when an aorist participle is linked to a present tense verb, then the action of the participle comes before the action of the verb. So that tells us that uh, we ha- because we have been justified here, we now have peace. So it tells us that justification logically precedes the peace that we have with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, normally we expect a different preposition. We expect in here, but it, Paul uses ek. 
and the preposition here for through is dia. They both indicate means, but what I've noticed, which is of great interest to me and anybody who knows the language, but not so much to people who don't, is that about 80 or 90 percent of the time, whenever Paul talks about Christ or the cross or what happened at the cross, he uses dia rather than the others. Because some of the Greek scholars will debate over this and say, well, there's got to be a different meaning because it's redundant to use these two prepositions if they both indicate means. But what I'm seeing is that Paul tends to use this to indicate the ultimate or the distant or original foundation of means, which is the cross. And then when he's talking about the more immediate means are what we do, he uses a different preposition if he's using both of them in the same sentence. Okay? Now, you don't need to pay attention to that. That goes over your head. But it's interesting the, the way in which Paul is consistent in doing that. So he says, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's doing when he says that is it entails all of the work of Christ on the cross. It, and so that is what we just observed in, in the Lord's table, that it is through his substitutionary spiritual death on the cross when he is separated from God the Father during those three hours, and he who knew no sin is made sin for us, so that the sin of the world is imputed to Christ. We'll come back to this in a diagram a little later on. So because we have been justified, we now have peace. This word peace, as I pointed out a while back, has several different meanings. Some people think of peace as the absence of physical conflict, and sometimes it means the absence of mental conflict, worry, anxiety, distress. Sometimes it refers to the absence of conflict between Jew and Gentile. As we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, we now have peace. And then it also can refer to the absence of personal conflict. But here it has this idea of an absence of spiritual conflict between God and man, the enmity, the hostility uh, that existed between God and man. And so we now have this peace. There is no state of enmity or hostility between us and God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, he says, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace. So we looked at this briefly last week. The through whom refers to Christ, that is what he did on the cross. Also, we have access. This word is also used in uh, excuse me, Ephesians 2.18. We have access by one spirit. That refers to the baptism by the Holy Spirit, which every Christian believes at the instant of salvation. Therefore, whom... Also, we have through whom also we have access, prosagoga, admission by faith into this grace. So now we're standing in this state of grace that is the same as being in Christ. And we saw this last time going through all the different passages related to baptism by the by the Holy Spirit that we put on the new man, 
we have put on Christ. This is our new state before God, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and the result is we rejoice in hope. We rejoice in hope because this hope is a confident expectation and it is focused on the glory of God, and we've studied this phrase many times. It's an idiom as, uh, out of, coming out of a Jewish background that often they would use the word for glory to refer to all of God's essence. And so here we have uh, another phrase. It's used in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all of his essence, all of his glory, all of his person. And here we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because we have access by grace. It's not based on anything that we do. Now we'll skip down to verse 10. Verse 10 we read, for if when we were enemies... So again, talking about that state that every uh, one was in before salvation, hostility to God, if when we were enemies. And there he is talking about before the cross, just as he uses that term in Ephesians 2. We were were enemies. That was the status of all mankind prior prior to the cross. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Now, pay attention. It's not talking about our personal realization of that reconciliation. It is talking about the objective reconciliation that is, takes place when Christ died. That's the basis for our personal Regeneration. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's t- salvation is used, as we know, in three senses in Scripture. The salvation that comes when we trust in Christ and we're saved by faith, that's phase one, happens in an instant when you trust in Christ. Phase two is salvation as we are saved from the uh, power of sin in our lives as we grow in uh, the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We shall be saved by his life. His life is not redemptive in the sense of bringing phase one salvation, but his life is an example to us of how we should live. And then in verse 11 Paul goes on to say, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So you see, there's one aspect of reconciliation that is accomplished at the death of Christ on the cross, and the second aspect is when it is applied to us when we receive the reconciliation. And here's our word, Catalasso, uh, which we have, I've already talked about, meaning the restoration of a relationship where previously enmity and hostility had existed. So I want to paraphrase 510 for us using this definition for reconciliation instead of the word for reconciliation. So the verse 510 said, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. 
paraphrasing that in that second line. For if when we were enemies, we were restored to our previous position through our Lord Jesus Christ. That previous position is that the sin penalty now is paid for. It's dealt with on the cross. So we see both aspects here, the reconciliation to God through the death of his son, which is the first one at the bottom. God performed the action of reconciliation at the cross. And the second is that in verse 11, we must receive the reconciliation. Now let's go to the other passage. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're memorizing scripture, this is a great chapter to memorize. The whole chapter is just loaded with significant verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll look at verse 19. That Let's look at verse, I'll, I'll read verse 18 to get the context. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Who performs the action of reconciliation there? God does. Who does he reconcile? Us. Reconciliation is manward. He does it through Jesus Christ, that is, through his work on the cross. And then he has given to us, at the end of that verse, he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. So you may say, well, if we're reconciled, why do we have a ministry of reconciliation? Well, because we have to understand there's a legal positional event that occurs on the cross where the sin barrier is removed so that sin isn't the issue. How many times have you maybe heard somebody give the gospel and they spend a lot of time talking about what a sinner you are? Sin isn't the issue. Sin's been paid for. It's been dealt with. That's not the issue anymore, and that's what this is talking about. It's dealt with by Christ on the cross. So verse 19 we read, that is, that indicates he's, explaining verse 18 in other words in verse 19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them to whom did God impute our sins he imputed them to Christ on the cross that is so Christ could pay for those sins and they're dealt with so sin is the issue at the gospel. You have to know you're a sinner so you know you're dead. You're spiritually dead. So it's not like you don't mention sin, but the issue isn't, well, how many sins did you commit? How many times did you do this? How many times did you do that? And that's what you hear from some evangelists. Sin is taken care of at the cross. The only issue related to sin that is important in giving the gospel is so people understand they're incapable of saving themselves. But Christ paid the penalty. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, not crediting them to them, and has committed to us the message, logos, the word or the message of reconciliation. I think there's a little bit of a double entendre here that what uh, he is saying is the word or message of reconciliation, but he uses logos because Jesus is the logos and Jesus is the means of reconciliation. Now then, he says, as a result of what happened at the cross in 33 AD, 
we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. Do you ever think about when you are giving the gospel to somebody that God is pleading through you for them to accept the gospel? You're not just doing it on your own. God is working through us when we give the gospel. He's pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. We urge you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. Notice that last line. See, on the one hand, we were reconciled as a group, as a class, as all mankind. Sin is dealt with. Reconciliation took place at the cross so that we can have the message of reconciliation that if you trust in Christ, then you personally then will be reconciled to God and have peace with God. So we need to understand uh, the barrier, an illustration many of us are familiar with. I have synthesized this down instead of five or six blocks in the barrier. This is a sim- simpler and more basic structure of the barrier, indicating the barrier between God and man. So what we have is all humanity, Jews and Gentiles, are on one side of the barrier, on one side of the sin barrier, and God is on the other side of the sin barrier. So that we have a barrier between God and man, and that is composed of these three elements. The penalty of sin. See, it's all sin, but there's different aspects to it. There's the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin, as we'll see, is spiritual death. Because we are, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.18, we are alienated from the life of God. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins. So man is born uh, separate at enmity at hostility with God. There's a penalty of sin. A second aspect of the sin barrier is that we lack righteousness. We are unrighteous, and because we are unrighteous, God, who is perfectly righteous, cannot have a relationship with his creatures because of sin. God is totally incompatible with sin, so he is separated from us. And then we have no life. We're alienated from the life of God. We are physically alive, but we're spiritually dead. We are uh, in many ways like, uh, like when you plug a fan in. You see the fan is alive. It is, it is plugged into the source of power, the blade spin. But then when you unplug it from the wall... The blades don't stop instantly. They keep spinning for quite a while sometimes. So that is a picture of us. We're physically alive. We look like we're really alive. But what Scripture says is we're the walking dead. We are spiritually dead. We're not plugged into the source of life. We're alienated from the life of God, and therefore we have no hope and no no future. Scripture says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The word for sin simply means just to break the rules, to miss a mark, to go out of bounds. It is not, the words in both Hebrew and Greek simply talk about, they're the words that you would use if you're watching a football game and somebody fumbles, that would be a homertia, that would be a sin. If you're watching a baseball game and somebody commits an error, that's a sin. 
Uh, those were the they were just everyday words. We've taken sin and made it a technical theological word. And some people say, "Oh, I've never sinned." And what they've done is they've restricted their concept of sin to some what they think is some horrible, heinous act that they would never do. Maybe it's some act of racism or genocide or uh, sexual abuse or something they think is really horrific. And what God says is that sin can be any act that it doesn't conform to his character, that doesn't measure up to his standards. And that can be a mental attitude sin of anger or hatred or resentment or bitterness or it can be a sin of the tongue, such as gossip or slander or something else of that nature, telling a lie. Or it can be an overt sin, such as physical attack on somebody or a physical act of breaking the law, which is both a sin as well as a criminal offense. But God says everybody's committed sin. The, the most minor things that you think of, a little white lie, well, that is a sin. That is missing the standard of God. And so we've all fallen short of the glory of God. This first began in the Garden of Eden. This is where we learn about the penalty of sin. There is a legally assigned penalty from the Supreme Court of Heaven that is first articulated in Genesis 2.17. God put Adam in the garden before he created Eve. Adam is the head of the race, so Adam gets the instructions. And then it's his responsibility to pass those instructions on to Eve after she was created. But the instruction was the one prohibition of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, God says. For in the day that you eat of it, now it's not poison. It's not something that's toxic physically. But it was, it was the act of disobedience to God that was toxic spiritually. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And it's an expression in the Hebrew that is extremely strong emphasis. It's certain. The day, the time, the instant you eat of it. So it's not talking about his physical death, which was 930 years later. It's talking about that instantly he's separated from God because he has broken one of God's laws. He has disobeyed God. And let's face it, folks, if you were to list the worst things you could possibly do, eating a piece of fruit would not be on the list. Okay? It is the act of disobedience that's significant, not the act of eating the fruit. So as a result of that, there's a separation. What happened? Well, we all know the story in Genesis chapter 3, when God came to walk in the garden with them, they heard the sound of the guard, they were heard the sound of God, they were afraid, and they ran and hid. And then they tried to cover it up, and then they blamed each other for the sin. Adam blamed the woman. He's really blaming God because he said, it's the woman you gave me. And then she blames the serpent. So everybody, if they start the whole pattern, nobody wants to take responsibility for their own failures. So spiritual death enters the world. This is articulated again in the New Testament. Paul says in Romans 5.12 that we've been studying, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world. That's one man is Adam. And death through sin. That's that spiritual death. Thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Ephesians 2, the passage we've been studying on Sunday morning, says, And you he made alive, 
it's referring to that spiritual salvation made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So we're born that way. We're physically alive, but we're spiritually dead. Colossians 2.14 tells us, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, and that's just you know all the sins. Okay, we got this list okay, that's that's there that's indicated by this phrase consisting of decrees against us. What did Christ do? He canceled it. He blots it out. He removes it. When did he do that? It's at the end. He took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So the verse says, when he he canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way at having by nailing it to the cross, literally. Now, when did he nail it to the cross? Did he nail it to the cross when you believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior? No. He nailed it to the cross in A.D. 33. He nails it when he is paying the penalty for it. So that wipes it out. So I'm, I'm just reinforcing that, that scripture after scripture after scripture says that sin is obliterated. That issue between us and God is obliterated at the cross. It is the penalty of sin, and that's taken care of by what Christ does on the cross. We don't have anything to do with it. Whether we accept it, whether we reject it, our attitude toward that is at this point not relevant. That was an objective act that Jesus Christ did, a legal act where he paid the penalty as our substitute. Just like the lamb, the Passover lamb, was sacrificed at that first Passover in in Egypt, and the blood of the lamb was then applied to the doorpost. We went through this whole study on the blood of the lamb, the blood of Christ, it's not just a reference to to death. It is a reference to a death that is applied, okay? So it's not just sort of an abstract blood of Christ. It's like the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb didn't count until the blood of the lamb was applied to the doorpost of the house at, the pass, at that first Passover. And then God passed over the house and the firstborn did not die. So the sin barrier, the first element, is dealt with objectively by Christ on the cross. Second problem is righteousness. We all think that we're pretty good. Some of us think we're a lot better than anybody else, and we probably are, or we may be. The issue in righteousness isn't are we better or worse than other people. The issue in righteousness are are we as good as God intended us to be, as as we must be measuring up to God's righteous standard. The word righteousness relates to having a standard. Isaiah states, and notice he uses the word we, and Isaiah is one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, and he says, we are all like an unclean thing. And all of our righteousnesses, not all of our unrighteousnesses, but all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Away from what? Away from God. Sin separates us from God. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. 
So when it comes to a barrier between us and God, the problem is we lack righteousness. For us to have a relationship with God and have eternity with God, we must possess righteousness. So God's got to solve that problem, which he does at the cross, Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That means every human being. For one will hardly die for, that is, in the place of, or as a substitute for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone might dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8, 32, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And 1 Corinthians 15.3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. So that's just establishing the principle of substitution. So what happens is we have a righteous God. He is absolute righteousness, so that is the standard, but we fall short of it. And he is absolute justice, so he has to uh, punish, legally punish, those who fall short of his righteousness. Here we are. We're represented by the box. We are minus R. We lack righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6, I just read, all our righteousness is like a filthy garment. So at the cross, Jesus is perfect righteousness. But our sins, our unrighteousness, is imputed to him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin, perfect righteousness, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So what happens then is our righteousness is imputed to Christ. When we trust in him, his righteousness is imputed to us, and God declares us. See, here we have his righteousness. So it's like we're dressed in rags, We're not changed. He doesn't change our rags into something glorious. We put on a robe of righteousness so that God doesn't look at the rags underneath. He looks at the righteous robe of Christ that we have and on that basis declares us to be righteous because we're not morally changed. We're still sinners. We're still going to disobey. But we possess, legally possess the righteousness of Christ and so he declares us to be righteous, and he blesses us. That is a description of what it means to be justified by faith alone. Romans 4, 1 through 3, using, Paul uses Abraham as the illustration. He says, verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, did God justify him because he did good things? He didn't even have to obey the law because the law wasn't given for another 400 years. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. It's not his works, it's his faith. He believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Galatians 2.16, which I recite right now every Sunday morning, because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even so, we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ 
and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. We can't work our way to heaven. We can't be good enough. We can't be nice enough. We can't be wonderful enough. We have to trust in Christ. And Romans 4 goes on to say down in verse uh, 4, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted as righteousness. So the second issue is, the first issue is resolved by what Christ did on the cross. The penalty is paid for. The reason we're not automatically saved is the only way to get righteousness is to trust in Christ. We believe in him and God credits us with righteousness. But what about this issue of being spiritually dead? As we saw in Ephesians 2.1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, which means, according to Ephesians 4.18, we're alienated from the life of God. And so what happens is, going back to how we were created, God created mankind, humanity, with a physical body, and then he created us with a soul, our self-consciousness. We know who we are. You look in the mirror. You identify yourself. You think, you have a mind, an intellect, you have a conscience, you know what you ought to do and what you should not do, and you have volition to determine what you will do, whether you will do what you ought to do or not. And then in Adam's original state, he was had a human spirit. The human spirit enabled the self-consciousness, the mentality, the conscience, and the volition to function in reference to God. But when Adam sinned, that human spirit's gone. We're spiritually separated from God. We are still physically alive. We have intellect, mind, self-consciousness, conscience, and volition, but it doesn't function toward God. We're alienated from God, and when we trust in Christ as Savior, then something is born again, and that is the human spirit. Now we are alive to God, and we can learn about God, and we can walk with God. This is what we find in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. The original state is we're dead in trespasses and sins, but verse 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He is the one who makes us alive, but when we believe... In John 3, we all know the story of of, uh, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. And he says to Nicodemus, the top and best Bible teacher in Jerusalem, he says, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus says, how is this possible to enter into your mother's womb again and come back? I don't understand. And Jesus said, most assuredly, I say, unless one is born of water, that is physical birth, and the spirit, that is by the means of the Holy Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. That's what Titus 3.5 is talking about. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration renewal by the Holy Spirit. How does that happen? When we trust in Christ, that is when God the Holy Spirit regenerates us. 
So what we now see is those three problems are dealt with by the cross. The first one is dealt with objectively at the time of the cross, and we are given righteousness, the righteousness of God, and we are made alive again when we trust in Christ. That is what it means to be reconciled. All of those are part, taken care of at the cross objectively, but one is taking, only is taking place completely objectively, but the other two we have to trust in Christ. Then we receive the righteousness of Christ, and we are born again. So this is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2.16, that he might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, to God, and in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning and to be refreshed by it, to be reminded of our salvation, all that you have done for us on the cross, all that has been accomplished for us, that Christ paid the penalty so that reconciliation was accomplished on the cross, and all we need to do is trust in Christ, and we are and we receive that reconciliation. We The penalty has been paid for. Uh, we trust in Christ, and his righteousness becomes our righteousness, and we are declared justified, and we are born again. We are given new life in Christ, and we are a new creature in Christ. Father, we thank you for the gospel that it is so simple that it is not based on anything that we do, but it is based solely upon what Christ did on the cross. And we pray that if anyone here, anyone listening, any of those who listen today or in the future are confused or don't understand how to have eternal life, that it is very simple. It is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, trust in his substitutionary work on the cross, and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you will challenge us with what we have learned today, for it is the foundation for our spiritual life to encourage and motivate us to continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.